0: Hello, and welcome to On Topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University, Bloomington. Today, I'm talking with Jody Ellen, who works in sustainable food system science at Indiana University, where, among other things, she's a big part of the Indiana Food Council Network. Jody, thanks for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, first of all, tell us briefly about what the Food Council Network is.
1: So, Indiana has a number of established and emerging food councils around the state. And there was a need by food councils to connect to one another. And so issues that might happen in one community in Indiana may be different than the issues or needs that another community may face. Everybody's little community food system tends to work a bit differently, and the issues in the food system may be different and need to be addressed at the local level. And so the formation of food councils helped uh, increase the, the ability for a community to respond to need or to innovate in the food system. And so all those councils wanted to come together. They need professional development. They need to connect to one another. They need a network and intentional network building to connect the councils is how I, is my role at, at, for the Indiana Food Council Network and i work on a regular basis with them to get them the information they need the connectivity they need and hopefully resources and they have, can also be have also become some of our research partners
0: and a lot of these local councils as you say they all have different needs but a lot of them seem to focus on things like food access and education helping with food security and i imagine that's all very important kinds of work right now in some low income communities
1: correct in an immediate response to coronavirus and job loss in the food system, uh, people were really rolling up their sleeves and out there on the front lines distributing food. And so a number of the people I talked to were sort of trying to, to plug the holes in the dam, if you will. Uh, we had a huge increase in need for food assistance for free food. And we also had simultaneously a decline in access points for emergency food because a number of emergency food pantries are run by seniors. And because they're in the vulnerable population, they made the decision to not operate. And so even emergency food had to be redistributed. And so folks on food councils were working in these spaces trying to fill the gap.
0: In a circumstance like that, then how does one prioritize the nutritional elements that are in play in a, in a situation just so uh, impacted in two different directions, as you, you described?
1: Yeah, and I think that's always the question when it comes to emergency food distribution. How do we make uh, give people the best food poss- as possible uh, in, in an emergency food situation? And how do we help them not need emergency food for the long run to get by better? That's the million-dollar question. Emergency food assistance uh, happened, started happening on a federal scale during the Great Depression. And with the Agricultural Adjustment Act, that was a program as part of the New Deal that helped farmers grow less because there was agricultural surplus. And there was a huge public outcry, as you can imagine, because people were hungry. The reason there was excess agricultural food is because People couldn't buy it. And so then they started the Federal Surplus Commodities Corporation, a nonprofit, which then redistributed the agricultural surplus into the homes, into the emergency food assistance network as it became. And those two things have been sort of tied together since the Great Depression and now become part of the five-year cycle farm bill that gets debated and passed through the federal government every five years.
0: We are seeing long lines of people waiting to visit food banks, and we're seeing sparse shelves in some places and stores as shipping tries to keep up with demand right now. We're we're either seeing that in the media, some of us seeing it firsthand, but much of that media coverage centers around metropolitan areas. Is that the same sort of experience that's happening beyond the cities and the suburbs right now?
1: From what I know, um, there was a a lot of sort of that hoarding behavior that went on right away when the shelter-in-place declarations went into effect and everybody heard about those things. That's when we saw most of the cleared-out shelf space. Um, and I think in rural, they saw the same thing. And so they really struggled to stay on top of the buying. And it's just a struggle overall for grocery stores because, Americans generally tend to eat to spend about forty percent of their money on food away from home. And when you shift a huge percentage of that to food that's purchased in the grocery store, so in other words, food at home, as it's called in the federal data, then you even your grocery stores in urban and rural are struggling. How much supply do we need? So the supply chains are really, really disrupted, whether they're rural or urban.
0: A lot of delicate balancing Mm -hmm. going on in these systems, it seems like. If we think about the people who are dealing with food security issues right now, some perhaps for the first time, Mm -hmm. what kind of short and medium-term approaches should they be considering these days?
1: The SNAP program operated by the federal government is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And although people may not have been on SNAP before, they might want to consider that right now. Most people who receive SNAP are only on it temporarily, It's not for the long term. And so this is one way that a, an individual or a family can get money from the federal government because of job loss or because of the shift in um, income because of coronavirus to get a monthly allotment to purchase food. And then they don't need to rely as much on the emergency food system, but rather can go and purchase food from the grocery store themselves or their families. So that's one way that people can deal with this. And there's a lot of community effort going on um, in terms of private businesses. And this is the really interesting thing that you have private businesses, you have public institutions, all thinking about, gosh, how can we have a role in this? And what can we do with our kitchens and our knowledge and our staff that we, we might not have all of our staff, but maybe we have some of our staff. What can we do? And we've seen that here in Bloomington, both at One World Kitchen and at Indiana University Bloomington, where they're actually cooking and distributing hot meals. And so thinking about everyone's role, whether you're in the public sector, the private sector, or the nonprofit sector, seems like everyone's on board
0: right now. This is, in a way, an unprecedented and almost holistic overview of the food system at, at that point. When you talk about restaurants converting to markets, schools giving out uh, extra free meals beyond what they are normally mandated to do, this is very unique.
1: Yes, that's correct. And we have to sort of ask ourselves if a lot of this emergency food assistance was established about 100 years ago or nearly 100 years ago, why, why, do we still, why are we still in this system? And so those are some of the bigger questions that I I don't have the answer to, but we should really be asking ourselves, how do we want our system to look? Um, This is a really big shock to the system and all the market channels. Schools for a long time have served food, and they don't just have an educational function in the classroom. They have a societal function to feed children. And we have to feed children all year. And when schools are closed for snowstorms or for coronavirus or for the week in between school year and summer food programs, some kids have very little to eat. We have to wonder, is that okay? Is that a sustainable way for our community food system to move forward? Do one think about things a little differently?
0: Jody Ellett, a lot, if not all, farmers markets have had to shut down or really revamp their operations. It's easy to think of that from the consumer perspective. What can I get? What can I not get right now? What sort of impact is that having on the producers and growers?
1: Yes, yeah, this is having a major impact on growers who rely on farmers markets, those in-person markets uh, to sell either five months to 12 months out of the year. Many farmers' markets are thinking about, gosh, how can we get our market online? Uh, The Bloomington Farmer's Market was able to pivot and shift and bring an online marketplace forward in April, and they are selling out of food within hours every week. So some of these markets may have tremendous success with online, but it is a lot of work. And again, it's this bigger effort of, I mean, we're lucky because that market is run by the city of Bloomington and they have resources and personnel to help farmers get their sales. Um, They're doing a lot of work on behalf of farmers. Farmers are thinking, gosh, maybe I need an online store. Maybe I can offer what's called a community supported agriculture box from my farm food that I normally sell to restaurants. You know, farmers are having to Find these markets into the home consumer where they may have had uh, markets to an institutional buyer or to a restaurant buyer. And so when you disrupt their market channels, they have to be very nimble and very quickly nimble um, because we're just heading into the growing season. In the middle of the growing season, impact would look different. Uh, this part, this time of the year, markets and farmers have some ability to shift. And really, a lot of uh, these abilities for farmers markets to operate fall on the regulatory agency. And so the counties in Indiana have home rule, and they govern whether or not a farmers market can open in person, just like a grocery store. And so all of these markets are going to have to work with their county health department. To determine what looks best, how can we open our farmers markets under these social distancing rules? And a lot of markets nationwide have figured out these things out. There's a lot of guidance out there and a lot of best practices already out there for farmers markets. So they should be able to open. Not everyone's going to, be able to want to go to the farmers market, and so there may still be a place for that online farmers market. Either there may be the customers or the farmers are compromised in some way and they don't want to be exposed to people with coronavirus. So they, the online market still serves that place. And so there's a lot of people really, again, rolling up their sleeves, getting out there and trying to make these markets happen in light of all these new
0: measures. And I would imagine that a farmer's market for most producers is a substantial part of their revenue stream, either the market itself or supplying restaurants and the like, is an important part of their business model, and a business model that does not allow a lot of room for error.
1: Yes, that's correct. Just as if you had um, rain every Saturday, uh, that is the type of impact uh, on a farmer's income that is is not positive. And so... Uh, it is really important that we continue to buy food from local farms. We continue to find ways that local farms can sell food into these newer, different market channels for them so they can stay in business and keep farming. Local farmers are part of our community, just like any other small business. And we have to support them and treat them with the, that support that other businesses are receiving.
0: You can read stories about crops uh, not being harvested this season because of potential manpower shortages. If you put those kinds of stories next to food shortage stories, it seems like an obvious disconnect. How does that come to be? And what might the steps be to try to solve the two problems at once?
1: Yeah, the obvious the disconnect happens because there are sort of long standing market channels, and this is the milk we produce, and this is the market channels we sell it into. It gets processed, and then it goes into schools in these size cartons. Well, if schools aren't giving, selling as much milk, if, if schools aren't buying as much milk, where else can that go? What other markets can that go into? How can things be packaged differently? So even really large distributors who normally distribute to food service agencies are figuring out how they can repackage for the retail food industry, in other words, grocery stores. And so thinking about how the larger production food production spaces can shift into that, again, home consumer market for the time being. And then, again, that same irony that you have agricultural surplus on one hand and people without enough food on the other hand, this is exactly what we were seeing in the Great Depression. And that's why the Agricultural Adjustment Act and then the Federal Surplus Commodities Corporation came in and did those things. But we're probably not going to see the level of federal engagement that we did in the Great Depression because we're a much larger country. So that type of engagement has to come from state leadership, it has to come from local leadership to coordinate excess agricultural with need. And so a lot of coordination has to go on. And we, in our world, we, a lot of times we call it value chain coordination and really okay, the value right now is we have excess filling the, the needs in the community and so Making sure that the supply chain locally, more regionally, or maybe even statewide, is accounted for so that bigger agricultural producers that are producing commodities, so that they have markets too.
0: You used the word nimble earlier, and sounds like that's going to be an important attribute to have going forward here. One thing you work with is something called sustainable food systems. It's a concept that aims to provide food and healthy food to consumers with the goal of not harming consumers or overly burdening the environment and also adding some societal benefit. That's a basic definition. But if you would operationalize that for us in a COVID-19 sort of context.
1: Yeah, again, we, we have to think about is the food system we have sustainable? This is a pretty big shock to the food system. And we have to determine, you know, what are the things that we did as a society in our communities to make sure that farmers stayed in business, that food businesses stayed in business, and that people could eat, and people could eat with dignity, and people were eating in an equitable fashion. So part of the big part of the sustainability equation in the food system is equity. Is, do people have equal access to food? And so as we think about this big shock and what people did and the things we did, we, we might want to start thinking about policies and things that need to be put in place so that we can withstand this. And I think one of the terms that gets talked about a lot is resilience. You know, how can we be more resilient? How can we bounce back and even bounce forward, if you will, into something that looks different? And in our in our group, we talk a lot about not just production practices for sustainability, but eating practices in the home, like you said, and then that relocalization of the supply chain so that your region can sustain your community a little better so that we're not relying on food from far away when supply chains get disrupted from, let's say, this COVID-19 shock.
0: With a big shock like this, are we going to see more private gardens? Victory gardens, my great-grandparents would have called them. Are we going to see more of that, or are we going to see an increase in community garden plots becoming more popular?
1: Well, I think there has been an increased interest in community garden plots, for one. I've also seen a lot of home gardeners getting in the dirt. It's been a beautiful spring so far, and people... Oh, I know nationally there's a, a lot of movement. They're, they've renamed sort of the Victory Garden movement into this cooperative gardening movement, and they are hosting regular meetings to try and get people out into the soil. Because not only is gardening something that can increase your self-sufficiency in your home, but gardening itself, the act of gardening, has also been seen to reduce stress and to help a person sort of think and deal with the situation they're in. And in this case, the social distancing situation. So digging in the Dirt is can be good for you nutritionally, but can also be good for your mental well-being. So, yes, there's a good surge in that. I don't know. Uh, we'll see what the data says towards the end of the growing season. And then thinking, I think some gardeners are thinking, gosh, I could grow more and donate. And so there are channels for donation into the emergency food system that gardeners and farmers can tap into this year so that they can be part of the relief effort as well.
0: Jody Ellett works in the Sustainable Food Systems Science Group at Indiana University and with the Indiana Food Council Network. Jody, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me
0: we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. You can also subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. And on social media, be sure to search the hashtag InThisTogether to stay up to date on the broader statewide campaign. For On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.